a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day everybody, something different for you this week, really different, a Howie Games special for episode 119, part A, although admittedly you guys will be the ones judging how special it is. I reckon it'll be good though. Today we delve deep into just what is involved in making a sports documentary. Now as a sports fanatic, I love watching sports docos, I'm sure you're the same, I'm sure you've got your own particular favourites. It turns out Australia is really good at making them and we're going to focus on two titles in particular. So Amazon Prime has made a really big splash in this space over the last couple of years. Last year, they released The Test, a new era for Australia's team, which took viewers behind the scenes of the Aussie men's cricket team, from the fallout of the disaster of the South African tour through to the 2019 Ashes triumph. It was really revolutionary, because I guess we'd never actually seen inside the dressing rooms like this before. So we had seen Steve Smith struck that frightening blow by Joffre Archer at Lords. What we hadn't seen was what was happening in the change rooms at that very moment. Boys, need someone out there. Need someone out there big time. Oh, that's I think we're all in shock. Um, I think the worst was when he was laying there. That was probably the scariest moment for us all. It's a stunning documentary. If you haven't seen it, even if you're not into cricket, have a look, because it's a cracker. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Now, on Friday, March 12, a new documentary will be released again on Amazon Prime titled Making Their Mark, which follows six subjects through the 2020 AFL season. It promises to be something really special. I've only seen part of it, and it was eye opening. Man, I had a good discussion in match committee. You're just out of form. And I don't take that lightly. This is a really, really hard decision. But, mate, just the output at the moment is just not there. And we're going into a cutthroat game this week. But I have to make this decision, Cox. It turns out that two good mates of mine were instrumental in both these Amazon Prime documentaries. Luke Tunnicliffe is the executive producer of Making Their Mark and Adrian Brown is the executive producer of The Test. I've worked with these boys a lot over the years. So I reckon this episode will show you that making a quality sports documentary isn't just a matter of getting a few cameras inside a change room, bang, knocking it together in the edit suite. It is a massive undertaking involving large teams of really talented people who ride nearly as many highs and lows as the athletes they are documenting. As you'll hear from Adrian and Luke, it almost becomes an obsession for those making the show. Welcome to the world of sporting documentaries. Enjoy. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I. 
Welcome to the Howie Games on a special edition. We've never done this before. A couple of amazing sporting documentaries out thanks to Amazon making their mark following the AFL season of 2020 and the test, which was extraordinary following the Australian cricket team from everything that happened through South Africa all the way to winning the Ashes. These two gentlemen, I know them both well, so it's a little bit strange to chat to them, but it's Adrian Brown, who will forever now know, be known in the podcast as AD. G'day to you, AD. How are you? How are you? Good. And Luke Tunnicliffe, who those trying to identify him will be known as Tunners. Hello, Tunners. How are you, mate? Hello, Howie. It's a pleasure to be on the number one podcast with you two gentlemen. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, before we start, I've known you both a very, very long time, and it sounds a little bit strange, but you both should be so proud of what you have done. The test... I've seen every episode, I've watched it with my family and it gave an incredible insight into the passion of Australian cricket and what is required. And Tunners, I've only seen two episodes of Making Their Mark, obviously due to restrictions, it hasn't been released yet. I've seen the trailers this morning, I'm that pumped about seeing it. You must both be extremely, extremely proud for what you've done. So firstly, congratulations, you've really set a mark, I reckon, for Australian sporting documentaries. We'll start with you, Slim. Before we go into it, you've done a lot, mate. You've done the front bar, uh, you made your own AFL documentary on the Bulldogs as well, which was fantastic. You were on a show with me called Sports Watch. But where did it start, mate? What was your first job in TV, 80? Oh, can I just backtrack because you said I'd be known as 80 and then you just called me Slim. Okay, so. well, Slim as well. <laughs> Slim Shady 80 for those trying to follow. Yes, mate. My first, it was, my first paid gig was working the boundary with Dipper. <laughs> and I used to call the numbers on and off as an interchange stats guy. I somehow I knew all the numbers for footy in the 97, 98, 99 seasons. And I'd worked as a, I'd be hanging around having done work experience at Channel 7 and Viewcast, which later became AFL Films. And um, my first paid gig, they said, hey, there's a job up if you want it. And we've introduced some new technology where we can have the interchange, the numbers come on and off. <laughs> Would you like to do it? So I sat on the boundary next to Dipper Friday nights. And I would call, you know, North Melbourne off 18, on two. Richmond off 10, on, on seven. <laughs> and I did that. And it was awesome because I had Friday night footy, the best seat in the house. I'd go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, go to the grand final. In the end, it became I was sort of Dipper's right-hand man that Dipper, someone had come off with a leg injury and Dipper go, go find out what's wrong. <laughs> and so I'd be wandering up to the dock or what's he done? Yeah, dip, hamstring, and Dipper had come on. Yeah, I think it's a hamstring, Bruce. <laughs> so it was that That then led to production assistant jobs on shows called, you know, Live and Kicking back in seven in its early days, The Game, Sports Watch with you, Howie, and, and it just keeps moving. It's funny you talk about Dipper because of all the boundary riders, um, and I've had a crack at the job myself, he's by far and away the best. What was the brilliance of Dipper? Why is he known as the best boundary rider of all time, do you reckon? Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't, I don't know what the coach has said because I didn't go out there. <laughs> always had to talk after a loss, but uh, a good effort by Carlton. Oh, I wouldn't say that, Dipper. Looking forward to a rip-snorting crackerjack of a game, buddy. Let's make, hello! Hello! Can you, can you hear me now? And, of course, all my nose are on my hand here. It's like the three musketeers here, I suppose. Uh, Don, Dennis, Drew and Dipper, the four Ds. Well, he was just himself, wasn't he? Like, he truly was just... Like, there's only one Dipper, you know? And, and he, he was probably the first person thrown into it in, in Australia. Like, there was Dixie Marshall and a few others, but Dipper came in. He was that first ex-sort of footballer down on the ground. But I think they just said, hey, Dip." Just be yourself. And the more he relaxed and became himself, I think early days there's some 
Vision is a dipper file over at Channel 7. We've used a fair bit on the front bar. When he was trying to do a few stats and a few things, he'd get himself a little bit twisted. But then when he just became dip, he was just lovable. Like, and there's some, like I worked the night, the, um, uh, the scoreboard, Richmond oh, Carlton, 1999, oh. and suddenly there was a flame. And Dipper suddenly went into um, 24-hour news channel, Dip. <laughs> and uh, the police now are just trying to get the people from under the scoreboard uh, away from their seats. And he was running up to the top of the stairs and he got the fire and he was up top down here and he got Wayne Jackson over there. And he, it was amazing to see him flip that night. But the one thing he always, now when I see him, he'll always say g'day, he always looks after you. Dipper was just a loyal, you know why his teammates would have loved to have him on his side. He always says g'day and he, and he loved everyone. It was the early days at Channel 7, wasn't it, when I first started there and there was a dipper file, Tunners, and every every Monday, a bloke called Andrew Simpson Simpo, <laughs> you'd be down with a one-inch tape machines and they'd be rolling over and he'd be getting the compile of dippers work from the weekend that was a little bit loose and, and he'd whack it on the compile. Then we'd come in at lunchtime <laughs> and we'd sit there and watch it slim. And it, was oh, yeah. the, it was the greatest entertainment known ever. Now, what about you, Tunners, because you started – actually at the Collingwood Footy Club away from sports television. How did you get into TV? What was your first gig, mate? Uh, well, as you said, Collingwood Football Club for me, straight out of school as a 17-year-old, I was fortunate enough to get a job as in football technology, which was staggering in itself because I didn't really know anything about technology. But um, <laughs> I spent four years in the coach's box at Collingwood, two under Tony Shaw, two under Mick Mouldhouse. And I look back now and think, you know, what an incredible experience that was at the age that I was, um, you know, to travel all around the country and and, and be involved. I clearly was the youngest probably ever to, to sit in a coach's box. So the, the things that I heard in there can't be ever unheard. Um, it was an amazing environment, but you know, everybody was just so great. We didn't win a lot of games when I was there. Um, I was fortunate enough to sit in the, the coach's box, Mick, uh, called me back after I left. I went to Channel 9. So I did sit in the coach's box for the grand finals 2002, 2003, I think it was. Um, but, yeah, look, my association with Eddie Maguire started back then when I was young, when he took over um, the presidency. And then when Channel 9 got the rights in 2001 off Channel 7, um, he said, you're coming to Channel 9. Uh, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it. He just said, you're coming. I, he threw me into the role of uh, the comms box statistician. And yeah. so I sat there every Friday night with Dennis Cometti, Gary Lyon and Dermot Brereton and Ed. And, uh, yeah, they were amazing five years. You know, we had uh, Tony Jones breaking stories. We had Doc Larkins down the boundaries. I mean, I think as a, as a broadcast, those five years... I'm really proud of. So from there, you know, you, you learn, as AD said, you, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way up in, in that production assisting sort of role. And uh, and then lucky enough to, you know, help on the footy show when it was really flying. Um, footy Classified, we started that, you know, from from the ground with, uh, with Craig Hutchison. And, yeah, just sort of worked my way from there, Guru. And another show you're heavily involved in, I know, and, and it nearly broke you at the time, was The Recruit, which I absolutely loved and, and my kids loved as well. It was sort of reality TV of trying to produce a football. You had Matty Eagles on the list up in Brisbane as well. It was a fantastic show. So 
We could talk a lot about careers, but let's talk about sporting documentaries. As I said, I'm so proud of what you guys have put out. I can't wait for people to see Making Their Mark. And it's funny, Tun, as you're saying, you sat there with Mick Malthouse for those grand finals. You have now, from what I've seen on the promo clips, brought the audience to see Damien Hardwick in the box in a grand final. So it's amazing the, the progression you've made. All right, start with you, Slim. You don't have to name one. You can name a few. What are your... Favourite or what are your favourite sporting docos? Oh, he's got the notes. My man's prepared. I like this. What have we I got, Aidy? Well, I did. When you when you said, here's just a, one or two things to think about because I think oh, I could go on for ages in, on this topic, but you're, you, you've got when we were kings, you've got a few that you go, okay, let's put those aside. I like to go a bit, you know, what what are some that people may not have heard of that sort of touched me or hit me? And, and one is Hoop Dreams, which a lot of people have seen because I feel like that, effectively started sort of sporting documentaries becoming a little bit mainstream. And for those that haven't seen it, uh, the, the, the patience it would have taken to spend seven years with two young basketballers out of Chicago. It begins with a game, with a basket and a ball. It becomes a journey of heartbreak and hope from city streets to the brink of fame. Um, it's a three-hour film. For those that haven't seen it, it, it's not. It starts about basketball, but it ends up becoming something else. It's just a great period of life, and even even by the very first part, which I'm sure Luke would have spoken about, the ability to adapt when you're doing documentaries, things change. And they were originally going to do. The directors were just going to focus on a Chicago a basketball court, an ordinary Chicago basketball court, and see the personalities that would come and go through that basketball court. And then they hooked on to two guys, William Gates and Arthur Agee, and followed their careers and they had the one dream, well, we want to play in the NBA. So from 13 through to 2021, and just to see the twists and turns of what life happens, that's amazing. And and there's one great line that that sort of sticks with me. Um, William Gates, one of the main characters, sort of says, um, people always ask, people always tell me, when you get to the NBA, don't forget about me. And he responds with, and I tell them, and if I don't make the NBA, don't forget about me. That's why when somebody say, man, you know, when you get to the NBA, don't forget about me and all that stuff. I should say to them, well, if I don't make it, but you don't forget about me. And it's, so, it's just a great, that's worth seeing for anyone. You've got Senna, which is possibly the best archive, use of archive material that's, I feel like that's almost what Last Dance was, but nobody knew about it. The F1 archives, which in you you would know how, how much was kept and an amazing effort to to actually have all of that film. Um, a couple other ones quickly. The Crash Reel, don't know if you ever heard about it. Kevin yep. Pierce, The Snowboarder, amazing film. Free Solo, rock climbing film. OJ, Hillsborough. There's so many, which are so great and so, so varied, but that's just a short. I could talk about any. Tunners, I don't know. So just, just before you go, Tunners, uh, it's going to be really hard for you, 80, but you've named about four or five. Tell me in two sentences what made them good. I find... The human struggle is it, it, probably the link through that, whether it's Hoop Dreams, Senna's got a bit about it, um, the Crash Reel, Kevin Pierce, Free Solo. When you start out of sport, and people say they're sporting documentaries, I think what then they become about, they're just human stories. And sport's the environment it's wrapped up in. And it's probably it's probably the aim of your podcast, Howie, I've, I've heard you talk about it, that, okay, great with the sports, great sports, men and women but they're human at the end of the day and it's the struggle of human life. 
Love it. Yeah. I, look, I would agree absolutely with Aidy. Making characters and people relatable um, and just telling a yarn from, you know, from start to finish, amazing access, something that's intimate, unscripted, you just don't know where it's going to go. They're the ones that I love. Aidy mentioned Free Solo. For those that haven't seen Free Solo, make sure you do because it's, you know, it's an incredible story that, um, you know, was shot over probably a two and a bit year period, I think. And the jeopardy of whether or not, so to, without a spoiler, a spoiler alert, basically a guy needs to climb up, you know, the biggest free wall in the world in uh, Yosemite in San Francisco. And it's just the jeopardy of will he or won't he and as you say, Adi, the personal toll on him and his family, I just found it incredible. And bringing the documentary makers into that and seeing them as his mates capturing him and the toll on them, I, I just think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a brilliant show and worth watching. I've always been conflicted about shooting a film about free soloing just because it's so dangerous. It's hard to not imagine your friend falling through the frame to his death. There's a show from, I think it's 20 years old, Ken Burns' baseball documentary. Now, it's 18 hours. It's <laughs> 10 parts. It's, it's incredible to think, you know, it's sort of ahead of its time. That's, um, I think that was sort of the beginning of these. For me, anything that can suck me in to the point where I enjoy a, I, I now follow a sport because of it. I, you know, you talk about F1. I think Drive to Survive you know, two or three years ago, I think it's an incredible show that now has brought a new legion of fans to the F1. Um, whether you watched it sporadically or or not, if you've watched F1 Drive to Survive, you're now a fan because yeah. you see what happens behind the scenes. You barrack for somebody and you're invested in it. Um, NFL for me, it's, you know, I got into NFL, one of my favourite sports, purely because of their long-form documentary making. You know, over the years, there's been, you know, 30 for 30s, hard knocks, all or nothing more recently. It's just done a brilliant job of capturing teams either in the pre-season or entire season. So for me, those ones, the more I watched, the more I understood NFL and loved it. So I really enjoy those. Recently watched the Tiger Woods, Woods doco. Um, found that interesting, how the... The documentary makers, you know, how they framed it and the angles they came from. Um, you talk about, obviously, you know, Jordan, Last Dance. I mean, everybody, I presume, would say that was that was a must-watch. Um, but they're closer to home. Clearly, 80s, the test. For me, as a cricket, you know, fan, um, I was just basically binged it over two nights when it first came out. Um, you never got to see behind the walls of the Australian cricket team. So for somebody like me who is a mad nut when it comes to cricket, I just, I found it incredible. And, you know, I'm sure you're going to, you get to specific moments, Howie, but, you know, when you see Justin Langer kick a bin at that moment and then go and pick all the stuff up and put it back in, you go, wow. Um, you know, it's it's just stuff you haven't seen before. So amazing. Recently, um, the Kathy Freeman doco last year, Again, you talk about use of archive. I thought it was great, but there's so many different ways you can yeah. you can come at these these documentaries. I tell you what, 
in this sort of uh, more formal setting, you boys are both very eloquent. I didn't realise how eloquent you both were. You both got your uh, professional hats on, which I rarely see. I've got a couple for you as well. I love Senna because I've sat in those F1 archives and I know how big that room is. So to go through that, uh, the last dance, Drive to Survive, there's a couple that you haven't mentioned. I'm not sure that you can pass off Endless Summer as a sporting documentary, but they follow these guys travelling around the world surfing, and if you think surfing's a sport, the other surfing one, which is an outstanding show, is called Kiss by God, which is about the late, great Andy Irons, which is an absolutely stunning show. Wendy, it's me. I can't deal with this. I'm sick. I'm throwing up on the plane. This is hell. I'm going to try to sleep all day. Love you. Bye. He said he was so sorry for everything. And he was coming home. Andy carried all of Hawaii by himself. No one really knew exactly how much of a toll it was really going to take. I'm Andy Irons, 27 years old, been surfing for 20 years. Hey, hey, question. You go on, Slim. You've worked at, and, you know, tell us about in making these things. When you go back to Senna, what was the F1's idea by filming everything behind the scenes? Why did they capture that? Well, what happens in F1, if you go to a race... There are 30 different broadcasters slim, and that's why Senna is so amazing. So one of my first jobs in F1 was to go to the uh, international broadcasters every week, and you would have to get every camera tape. So you'd go to the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spanish, the Australians, the Kiwis, the Americans, and they have all shot 25 camera tapes for the weekend, and that is the size of the archive. So they might, they might have the shot of Senna getting out of his car shot nine different ways because it's from nine different broadcasters. So I think that's why they were able to do such an amazing job because all this stuff was shot on so many occasions. So nothing Senna does is missed because if he's in hol- on holidays in Brazil, the Portuguese broadcaster is there filming him. If he's out for dinner in Milan, the Italian broadcaster is out there filming him. And I think that's the great thing about Senna, that documentary for me, is I appreciate how much time they went through for archival footage. Uh, it's the same with the Jordan one. There's a, there's a clip in the Jordan doco where he's talking about an ad and people outside of TV wouldn't really get off on it like I did, but there's the ad and then there's a cutaway on the side of someone else filming him filming the ad. And to go back through that amount of footage, I love those docos, but, both of your docos are not archival, so we could discuss archival footage for three days, but yours are not archival. Everything you've shot is what's gone into your doco. So, Slim, we'll start with you because yours came first. How were you first brought into the test? And in in a minute or less, what was the brief that you were trying to achieve? I was first brought in by Richard Ostroff at Cricket Australia, um, I'd made a film on the Western Bulldogs called The Outsiders. It's not before our time, it is our time, and you guys have earned it. In all our lives, we only really achieve when we get out of our comfort zone and face our fears and who knows what's on the other side. I've been wanting to say this for as long as I can remember. The Bulldogs go through to a grand final. Uh, it won an award, and I met Richard at these awards. What was the award, Slim? Come on, what was the award? The award was... It, it was the Australian, it's the Media Awards, the Australian Institute of Sport. Australian Media Institute Award. of Sport. Just go. one step below can. I think it was. You know, I got a fully, all expenses paid trip to Sydney. <laughs> um, and I, I met Richard there and then later on we'd, we'd always just been talking and then he was intrigued at how I'd managed to 
position myself and place myself within the Western Bulldogs loop beverage and, and get in the rooms and, you know, how does that work? Uh, and then at the time of Cape Town, everything fell apart with the Australian team. Justin Langer comes in, new captain, new coach. Richard had the foresight to shoot with JL on that first day of announcement. They, they said, let's just roll some extra cameras behind the scenes, press conference, on the car on the way back to the airport. And then I remember sitting down with Rich. He called me and said, how um, we we might be able to do something different here. How you did the Bulldogs, how do we translate that experience into the Australian team because we need something like that because for years, and you know what it's like, the Australian cricket team has been shut off to yes. the rest of the world. How, how do we penetrate that? He said, would you mind coming to the Australian team to talk to them about your experience with the Western Bulldogs? But before that, he sat me down and said, JL's the new coach. This is what we've shot already. Here's the next 16 months of cricket in Australia. It was India at home. Um, you've got two tests in Dubai, India at home, the World Cup, the Ashes, and as part of that, Steve Smith, David Warner are going to come back in the middle. We've got a new captain, a new coach. Things are going to change. And there was the opportunity to do it. And I was like, wow, that's pretty remarkable, 16 months of cricket. Um, plus you add in the fact that no one's ever been in the Australian dressing room with a camera before. I remember thinking, I don't know what it will be, but I just don't want to miss out on it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I, I remember sitting there and going, I, I was scared of it and it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this, but if I get to the end of this and I said no and someone else did it, I know I'll be envious of that experience. So it may as well be me. I just can't believe it. A day of cricket infamy for our country. There's nowhere to hide. How can our team be engaged in treating like this? It beggars belief. He's crumbling before your very eyes. We can't be flat and we can't be not aggressive. Who's going to break first? Is it going to be us or is it going to be them? This is going to get harder and harder. He's given four quick ones now for Australia. Marnus Labashain is on his way. I'd defy anybody to pick who the best six batsmen are. 50 commentators or something, all with differing opinions. I made the big mistake of reading all that stuff. All these things start going through your head. I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about getting out. People suggesting that the time's coming to an end for Aaron Finch. The skipper goes! You're going to have to drop your captain. An attack that's meant to be one of the best in the world. The numbers don't stack up. And there's talking about how Langer's losing it, he's getting angry. That was a really dark time. And you said, Slim, you had to go and address the team. So take me into that moment. You're a bloke. They don't know. There's some pretty strong personalities in that team, as I know. So well, you, you just walk in there and say, right, boys, this is this is my grand plan, is it? We fly up to Brisbane, AB Oval. And I remember even, even that I said, even if it's just this meeting, it doesn't get off the ground. I can tell Dad that I got up and made a, made a ch- talk in front of the Australian cricket team. Dad will be wrapped. <laughs> and that was my motivation through all this. Cause, you know, my dad dropped out, Coburg Tech, dropped out early. He would have loved any opportunity I get to, you know, assimilate within these experiences. So it was like, even if it's the bare minimum. So I got up, played a few clips from the Bulldogs, spoke about the possibility of doing something like this and placed the importance on trust. Um, and I said one of my things was, I said, let's just do a trial. Let's see how it goes. Let us go on this first tour to the UK. At the end of that three-month period, if you guys don't like it, if we're broken trust, if anything's leaked, gotten out, boot us out. But just, just give us that opportunity. And the one thing that I'm hell-bent on at the end of this experience that I need to look you in the eye and say, 
I'm proud. I, I need to be able to look you in the eye at the end of making this thing that I can't, I don't want to burn you. I don't want to be make this great thing and then be like forever and a day avoiding Justin Lang and Tim Payne and everybody else because, you know, I've done the wrong thing. I, I want to stand up in front of you guys and say I'm really proud of what we've made. And, and that's basically where it went. I also had to stand up. I got a question. I remember somebody saying, what's your favourite moment in Australian cricket? And I was like, oh, they're sounding me out here. And I went, oh, to be honest, I probably don't have one in the last 15 years. It was probably more when I was a kid. And I think I'm probably reflective of a lot of, of, a lot of Australians that have probably fallen out of love with the Australian cricket team. And so I feel this will be a way for me to reconnect with the team. And if I can do that, hopefully that will then lend itself to viewers to reconnect with the Australian team. It's a, um, gr- it's a great description, Adi, and, and what you talked about is trust is the genesis of what we'll talk about shortly because people are putting enormous trust in you and Luke's hands, a tremendous amount of trust, and you you can go two ways with that. Now, Tunners, I was working with you at Triple M on and off when you were going back and forth and back and forth with meetings with Amazon. This wasn't just a right, let's slide an idea to Amazon and they'll give it the tick and away we go. This was an exhaustive process. So what was the first kernel of the idea? And give it a brief description on how you go from that idea within, I presume, your organisation at Maguire to signing up with one of the biggest media companies in the world. Well, going back for us as GMTV, the Colonel probably started five or six years ago when we were making the reality show, The Recruit, which pulled back the curtain on what it took to make it at the highest level of AFL. I'm from South Australia. I'm from Kimberley, WA. From Sydney. Country Victoria. It's what we work for, to play on weekends. To do it as a profession would be a dream come true. My dream is to one day play AFL football. You know, and going back all those years, we, we often discussed us being Eddie, Coz, our director of the recruit, Michael Venables and I, we often discussed 30 for 30 and hard knocks and why there wasn't an equivalent uh, within the AFL that really, you know, really pulled back that curtain. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we started conversations with Amazon just over, over two years ago and it was important that we demonstrated to them what we could get, that we could get the trust of clubs and characters within it to truly show what makes Aussie Rules footy one of the most compelling sports in the world. We connected really well with LA-based Amazon execs Tyler Byrne and CJU throughout the process, and they were really supportive of us here at Jam TV developing an AFL format further. They then introduced us to director Gil Marsden, who'd previously worked with Amazon over in the States, and we collectively set out to tell the story of the 2020 season through the eyes of different characters. Um, Once we decided on the format of representation from the five footy states in Australia, myself, Gil, Julian Dunn and Darren Birch from the AFL jumped on planes and went and met with characters that we had targeted. It was important that our job in those meetings was to convince them to open their doors completely for a full access for the entire season. But from their point of view, to explain to them what they would hopefully get out of it at the end with a finished product. Yeah, I look back now and really happy to think we delivered what we originally set out to achieve. Okay, let's make a start. We've been through a hell of a journey. It is our story to write. What story you want it to be is determined by the man in that jumper and the man in that jumper beside you. It all comes down to us. Here we go. 
coronavirus has reached Australia. Playing games is going to become difficult. Let's talk about the trust issue right now. So start with you, Tunners. You come to me and I'm Stewie Jew, right? I'm the coach of the Gold Coast Suns. I'm a young coach. I'm trying to make my way. I'm really concerned about how I'm going to be portrayed in this documentary you're talking about. When I start swearing at my boys or when I lose it or when I do something wrong, there's going to be a camera there the whole time. What assurances can you give? How do you build that trust? And how do you convince someone when you don't know them that you're going to do the right thing by them? Because you see every reality TV show out of there and the guests always come out of the jungle wherever and say, oh, that's just how it's portrayed. That's not what it was actually happening. So you've got a tremendous amount of power in an edit suite. Well, you can talk a lot, but ultimately it comes down to your actions. I think trust takes quite some time to earn. Um, Actually, going back to my Collingwood days with Mick Malthouse, I remember when he turned up in 2000, he literally turned up, staff, staff were there and he said, it's going to take time for me to trust you guys. You'll know when I trust you. And I actually remember the day that he said, right, you know, you knew that you're part of his inner circle. And I always took, you know, always have taken that right the way through what we do. And yeah, we, I remember, you know, flying up um, uh, with Gil and having a, a breakfast with Stewie Jew uh, and Mark Evans and John Haynes, and we sat down and said, this is what we want to do. You're a young club, you're a young coach. We think that you can benefit by opening the doors. Um, You know, there there may be a certain stigma about the past of the Suns. Here's a chance for you to show the rest of the world, you know, in Australia, what you guys are all about. Um, And it took time. It wasn't just one conversation with Stewie. It's then a conversation with the leadership group to say, because the impact is also on them. You know, putting, having cameras in, in your face for these clubs, it's not, I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty new thing. Again, AD did it with the Bulldogs, but you, it takes a long time to build that trust. Um, and luckily we did. And we, and we actually didn't have a long time in, in this one because COVID hit and I'm sure we'll get into to the logistics of that, but things changed. So, so for you, Slim, there's there's a couple of things I guess you could talk about. Um, Usman Kawaja and Justin Langer, real tension in a moment between a lead player and the coach. You've given the same assurances I've no doubt as eighty. How do you toss it up and think right? That is captivating TV. Does it show both these guys in the best light? How do you come to that? And is there anything that you left out when people had done stuff that didn't cast them in the best light where you think, you know what, I'm going warts and all, but some warts you don't actually show? No, nothing. Like it's funny rack my mind of that. A lot of people ask, oh, why didn't you show Why didn't you show this? Why didn't you show that? Or why didn't you show much of David Warner struggling in the ashes? And it was like, well... In place of what? We've only got 55 minutes. You're also, you're trying to still entertain and tell a story that you could just go, oh, here's everything from behind the scenes. But if there's no narrative you're working towards or a story, you just can't put everything in. And I always felt that that 
there might be a scene to go, I love this scene, but if it just doesn't fit, it just can't go in. So there might have been things left out, but purely for story reasons, and that was just time to try and keep things moving at a pace. And, you know, you look at the Ashes, one of the reasons we couldn't focus so much on Dave Warner is because we had some decent storylines, whether that was Steve Smith or The Redemption or Headingley or Manus Labashain or whatever else it is, you go, you know what, there's... And you're trying to build light and shade within different things. But going back to the, the Uzi and JL, which was in Dubai... I think you just hope you provide enough context around it. In the Nets, JL has, if we, he has some sessions where if we get out, we have to, everyone has to swap, and it's an absolute pain in the ass, and I hate it. I think more worried about getting out than actually trying to execute better and execute well. Yeah, well, but what happens when you get out in a game? If I'm getting out two times in the Nets, right? Right. I know I'm getting out two times in the Nets. Okay. I'm playing test cricket here. But what are you worried about then? I'm worried about harping too much on negative... What, don't get out. What we are saying is we're not going to accept you getting out because for the last 20 times in Australian cricket, we've had 20 batting collapses. 20 batting collapses, and we've got to get better at that. It's got nothing to do with how we set up the net session because the Pakistanis, they might put 10 blokes around you. We can't always control the result. So we can get better at as individuals, players, staff, everyone, being better at the control of our emotions, being more level-headed. And one of the important parts of that was hearing Uzi talk in his interview about how he approaches his cricket, that he is going to do it his way and what he believes in. But he's respectful. It doesn't mean that his effort's anywhere near below 100% or he's not caring about the team. That's just the way he'll approach it. And he will stand up and voice his thoughts. And so you saw that play out. And JL, on the opposing part of that, talks about the respect he has for Uzi, who does stand up and voice his opinion. So you're going to have moments uh, in any, in any um, you know, documentary that if you just took that as a promo bit, you can go, great, oh, look at that sizzle, they don't get on. But if you sit and watch the five minutes in context, it makes sense and it's building towards something. And it was also a critical point of here's JL as a young coach trying to um, put down a, a certain methodology that he's trying to implant on the group. And here's a player saying, well, maybe that doesn't work for him. And through that, JL then starts to learn that oh, every player works some in some way a little bit differently. How do I get the best out of Uzi? And then it results in Dubai that Uzi does go on to make 100 in the test match in Dubai, game-saving 100, by sticking to his plan, by playing the only way he knows how and reverse sweeping. That Finchie says, so if Uzi doesn't do that, there's no 100, there's no draw. What a knock under pressure. He is absolutely loving it. But what an innings. He should be very proud of this century. So hopefully you just provide enough context around, you pick these scenes. I don't think you can just put scenes in to go, oh, here's... 18 spectacular moments of people blowing up and arguing. It's like, there's no story there. Great for a promo. And I think that's the hardest thing, AD, is when you have got shot an amazing scene, but you put it in the context of, you know, your 55 minutes and it just doesn't sit yeah. with where it should. And you have to have the hard conversation with your team and go, guys, it's just not working. Like, it's, it's as a standalone four-minute, five-minute scene... It's fantastic, but it's just not working in the grand scheme of an episode. And they're, the, you know, they're hard discussions to have. I love 
listening to the passion you two guys have and people listening, if you listen to the passion for Slim and Tunners about what has gone into their work, it's why you need to watch their shows and you see that passion come through. All right, then Tunners and 80, question without notice, what's a scene? So you're trying to tell a story which gets you from A to Z. All of a sudden there's something from the Greek alphabet thrown in there. You just can't fit it in there, right? What is that scene for you guys that you agonised over and you couldn't find a way to jam it in to your documentary? In the World Cup, Australia play India. Virat Kohli tell the Indian, tells the Indian fans to calm down and see Steve Smith. Right. And we had that in and people have said, why wasn't that scene in? And we couldn't just make it work because I think it was after that game, Ricky Pontingdale's Dave Warner to be a bit more aggressive. But we had that scene and now I feel like as a historical document... People have only ever seen Virat Kohli portrayed almost as this villain. Great player, but a villain and someone who's, you know, fighting against the Australians all the time. I think there was just, I never regret that, that we missed a beat to show, no, no, Virat Kohli cares about the game of cricket and he took time out to look after Steve Smith. And we interviewed Steve about it and then how he felt about Virat and we had a scene and it just didn't match, like Luke said before, the ebb and flow of... How, it just didn't work. It just didn't work for where we were going at that point. But I sort of wish, I wish that had been captured with him, but it wasn't. I mean, yes, there's a lot that couldn't be squeezed in. There would be multiple scenes from all of our six key characters that didn't make it that I felt you know, was great content, but for whatever reason just wasn't working. So the decision was made, yeah. I, I think further to Tana's point, what happens is I think when you go through the process... If you're sitting on that and holding this, oh, but it's got to get in, you can't move forward. Like, you've got to move forward and still finish what you're making. So if you're sitting there going, oh, but it can't get in, but it can't get in, you're the person who's got to make the call to go, hey, this is the tough call to everyone. It's out and we've got to keep going. So then you almost just remove it from your mind and go, don't think about it because then you're stuck there. If you don't move, you'll never finish it. So... A ton has brought up that one of his favourite moments was when Justin Langer kicked the bin. Now, this is why people need to watch the show. The test match had been lost in amazing circumstances due to Stokes. Justin kicks the bin. And then because in 10 seconds you saw why Justin Langer is the perfect man to lead this country because he kicks the bin over, he shows his frustration, then he is such a wonderful do the right thing, man. He then bends down on hand and knee and picks up the rubbish and puts it in the bin. And you're talking about clips, 80. I reckon you show that 20-second clip to anyone around the world and they say, that's why this man should be coaching the Australian cricket team. Could be a run out. Oh, he's fumbled. He's fumbled. Lyon has fumbled. This is one that comes down to trust because from what I can gather, and I don't want to give away state secrets here, but the coach took some convincing to put that scene in. So did you literally get on the phone with him and say, this needs to go in for these reasons? How'd that play out? Because it's it's my favourite. It's my favourite 25 seconds of the whole show. Which I think it is for a lot of people. And we thought it would resonate and we thought it was just an amazing moment for that to happen. And JL sort of came back. That Jay, I was like, oh, I don't feel comfortable with that. I, I, I don't like people seeing me angry in that moment and kicking the bin. I, I just don't want people to see that. And 
you know, you can hear that out. And what was great with the Australian team that you're always open and, and my number was there if they, they had it, they could call me and say they felt uncomfortable about something. But they were in town, it was the Boxing Day test. And I thought this isn't an email chat to have, this isn't even over the phone. I went down to the Nets and saw JL and, and I said, I said, how do you feel about it? And he said, I just I feel really uncomfortable with it. I, I feel like people will see me angry in that moment. And I said, it's, that's not the reason that it's in there. Kicking the bin, if it was just kicking the bin, we can take it out. We can see, um, you know, frustration through other means. You see that all throughout Headingley. It was the moment that's in there because you picked up the rubbish and we can't just cut to you picking up rubbish because that would be very odd. You need to spill the rubbish first. And I sort of went back to, to talking to him about at the start of the summer and, you know, there was elite honesty, elite humility and other things. And I said, I think it's a great lesson for people to see that you can be frustrated. You might, you know, lose your way in a moment. But instantly you took the time to recognise, to go, okay, that's my frustration, I boiled over, pick it up, pick it up, do the right thing. And I think that showed just a lot about how JL is. In just that 25 seconds, you don't need to say much else. He doesn't say anything. And I think sometimes with these, and I'm sure there's plenty of cases in Luke Stocko, that the best moments are where you just sit in a scene and you don't need to say too much. It's all there for people to see. Like, you know, pictures can say so much just when you're observing that moment. And he took a little while to think about it, but he was okay with it. But I think it's probably the most referenced clip within that eight hours. Well, um, I, I think it is 80 because it shows that nobody's perfect. You're not trying to be perfect, but when you make a mistake, the Australian cricket team had made a mistake and they were trying to learn from that mistake and move on. Like that That 22nd encapsulates everything that happened in South Africa all the way to the ashes in, in one fantastic clip. Mm. People think, righto, you send a couple of cameras, you whack it in an edit suite, bang, there's your show. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, for you, AD, you, you generally had one cameraman following the team. He was in better. What was the chap's name? Doc. Okay. So, AD, tell me, how many people roughly would have worked on the doco and how much footage did you have in your hard drives to edit from? Well, I roughly did a rough calculation. We had about 2,300 hours. 2,300 uh, hours of footage to go through. Well, if you think about it, yep. broadcast footage, you've got six hours a day. So let's wrap that up. Doc's probably shooting five hours a day and you're probably shooting, say, another six hours a day from other what we call ISO cameras or other high-speed cameras in and around the Ashes or, or the Australian events. That's 11 hours. So times that by five, you're 55 hours per test match. <laughs> um, you know, you play the Ashes, five times that, there's 250 hours for the Ashes. And then it just sort of keeps going and you sort of just move through over a 16-month period. It just keeps moving through. So, so we prob- So of your 2,300 hours, how much eventually gets broadcast? Eight. Right. Now people are starting to get a scale of what's involved and we'll discuss how you get 2,300 to eight. Now, Tunners, give me a brief description of your setup because you didn't have one team to follow so did you have one camera person embedded with each team? Like what was your setup and how much footage? I, oh, it hurts my brain to think about your answer of how much footage you shot. So we had 154 people that have been involved in our production, have touched this show um, and Jam TV over the course of the last 12 months. 
So we had obviously six teams around Australia. In each of those six teams, we had a team of five people. So it's one, sometimes two cameras, camera guys, a soundo, a producer, a production assistant, uh, archivist, etc. Like it's it's a pretty considerable undertaking. You times that by the six teams, you times that by the six months that we shot for five days a week. Like it's it's a pretty big setup, um, Howie. Um, and then you add you throw COVID into that, and when things change on a whim, and you've just got to roll with it. So how many hours do you reckon? You had, I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to live and die by this, but what type of general number of hours of footage do you reckon you shot? All up, we shot in the vicinity of around 3,000 hours, which was distilled down to seven one-hour episodes. And, Howie, when you're managing that large of a number, you have to have great systems and processes in place, and we're so lucky that our GMTV post-production team were outstandingly efficient in, the, in that area. So you mentioned covid we were there doing Friday night footy and you told me about your docker as much as you could and you came in one night and you said when COVID hit, I think the whole thing's off and you were a shattered, shattered man. So how did COVID affect this enormous operation with a huge budget that we'll get to, Slim, the size of Altana's budget that you had to spend? How did it affect you, mate, when, when the walls came crashing down as they did around the world? Well, I think when you... You know, you're so invested in something over a long period of time and, I mean, it'd be the equivalent of a, a horse owner getting their horse to you know, into the starting gates and then getting scratched at the barriers and that's theoretically what happened to us back in March the 20th, I think it was. And I'll never forget, you know, sitting in our Jam TV boardroom, you get the call from Los Angeles and um, the Amazon team over there just saying, um, sorry, guys, you need to down tools. Uh, we've got 200 productions worldwide uh, currently in production and we've told them the same thing, we're, we're down. And, you know, for us, it was just, it was, it was shattering. But then straight away, you've got to get, you've got to flick your mind to, right, they've told us that, but is there another way around this? How do we... You know, how long is this going to take? And, and then your first thought is for our team. You know, we put together an amazing team of people. Our director, Gil Marsden, had, had literally relocated his family from the US. Um, Cos Cardone and myself just put, you know, so much time and energy into this over a, a, up until that point. And then to hear the words, no, no, just pack down. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's shattering. But, you know, we didn't give up and, and we found a way... We needed to just roll with the punches throughout the entire time that we were filming. Um, I don't think at any point we were comfortable that, you know, we were through COVID. At any point, a curveball was going to be thrown up and you just, you just had to go with it. That's the end of part A of our deep dive into Amazon Prime's The Test and making their mark. Some good gear to come in part B, including some exclusive audio. See you then.